pass by our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for gathering us together so faithfully in a church that you've set aside from eternity past to bring glory to you, Father. Thank you so much for the completed canon. Thank you for giving us access to it anytime we'd like. And thank you for always encouraging us through a variety of spiritual gifts that are available to us as individuals, but as a congregation to encourage each other for as long as it is called today, Father. We pray for those that can't be with us, and we pray for those that are still lost most of all. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality for all of us, something that we can all rejoice in, Father. We just pray for this evening's message, that it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, undistracted devotion to the Lord. As I mentioned when we began this series, I'm really excited about it um, for lots of reasons. Because it's encouraging, because it's focusing our attention, um, and it sort of takes out a lot of the white noise in our lives. Just reminds us of what is necessary and what really matters in this life. So for the sake of connective tissue, recall that it was Jesus' words to Martha that kick-started our current studies when he said this up here on the board, Luke 10, 41-42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Another translation, the Living Bible, up here on the board. <clears throat> but the Lord said to her, Martha, dear friend, you are so upset over all these details. There is really only one thing worth being concerned about. And that's been our lesson. Mary has discovered it, <clears throat> and I won't take it away from her. For the sake of clarity, we must understand, but only one thing is necessary up here on the board. That wonderful phrase that so many of us could benefit from by dwelling on and contemplating and meditating on uh, each and every day, but only one thing is necessary. Jesus was speaking of himself, of course, worshiping him, partaking in the very bread of life. He, the Word, is our sustenance after all. And while the world focuses on the physical, we believers are to focus on spiritual, heavenly food and shelter, etc., etc. Again, Jesus was talking about himself, worshiping him and partaking in the very bread of life. That's the only thing that's necessary. If you focus on that, he promises to add everything else that you need to your life. Need, not want, need. After all, he is our sustenance. Uh, and he has, I've been thinking about this a lot, even wrote a blog on this. Um, he has set himself up that way. He set it up so that there's a vacancy or a void in our lives that only he can fill. And that's a wonderful thing because he's perfectly faithful. So he is our sustenance. While the world focuses on the physical things, we believers are to focus on spiritual, heavenly food, and shelter. As a person's focus goes, so goes their devotion. And typically, as a person's devotion goes, so goes their idolatry. Let me say that again. As a person's focus goes, so goes their devotion. And typically, as a person's devotion goes, so goes their idolatry. Let's grab a friendly reminder. Go to 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. So at the end of his first epistle, the apostle of love has this to say. And if you know anything about the first epistle, first John, it's fantastic. It's just chock full of so many um, freeing doctrines. First John 5.19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is something right there. Just... Back up for a second. Just think about that. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
So it's sort of an us and them situation. We're in the world, but we're not of it. Our citizenship is in heaven, remember. Um, but we're in the world. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think sometimes we forget that. I think that sometimes we think we can integrate with the world. And everything's going to be cool. And it doesn't work that way. We cannot be integrated with the world. We have, we're in it, but we're not of it. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. I just wrote a blog, I think, last week or the week before on that, that Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's something to ponder. And then this is how he closes this incredible book. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. In a way, it almost seems disjoint. It just seems, wait a minute, what? You were going, you know, a certain flow, you know, little children, guard yourself from idols. Last thing I have to say, guard yourself from idols. I've always thought that this simple closing to such a fundamentally important book in the Bible is so very telling. It's almost like the Apostle John summarized the book from the predominant dangers he just dealt with in the book within the five chapters previous. I know that's an oversimplification, but I hope you know what I'm getting at. I think it's especially poignant because it's how I often feel when I'm done teaching a lesson or even a whole series. How many, now think about it, how often has the summary of a lesson or a mini-series or a whole series been touching up on idolatry? It's always there. Idolatry is always part of the mainstream thinking. It's always part of the practical considerations, regardless of the series that we happen to be on. And so it makes sense um, that we often, even nowadays, close or summarize um, key series with the practical side, which is idolatry. I think it's because we Americans are plagued with it. I mean, I've had a couple of rails lately against America, and I hope you don't misunderstand or misinterpret where those are coming from. It's not America that I'm upset with, it's its people. And since we live in a democracy, you know, we elect leaders that end up leading us, and there goes the country. But it's not the country uh, that I'm upset with, it's the people. Because we Americans are plagued with idolatry. And I'd argue, and this is going to be the crux, if you would, the first key element of this evening's message, I would argue that most Americans are so ingrained in idolatry that they hardly even recognize their condition. They hardly even recognize it. And I think that's one of the hardest battles as a pastor nowadays is getting people to recognize their condition <clears throat> so much of what the Spirit's been impressing upon us over the past few years has been on this last statement up here on the board. I'll call it situational awareness. You're all in a situation. You're all in certain circumstances in your lives. But we all live in this country. Um, we all live in this society that has been completely duped. And it's like a big giant ship of fools because... You look to your left and to your right, and everybody's going, yeah, that's the way it should be. Idolatry is number one, and that's the way it should be. And you should be the next, what, American idol. You should be striving to be an idol. Most people are so ingrained, but it doesn't have to be like that. I'm not talking about Simon and all those bozos over there. I'm talking about in your own life. Most people are so ingrained in idolatry that they hardly even recognize their condition. And I think that's why John said that in 1 John 5.21. Guard yourself from idols, idolatry. Because so, so many people are so ingrained in it, they, they hardly even recognize their condition. I think that what the Spirit's been doing for we believers in this congregation 
is tearing us away from said idolatry. And in all fairness to us as individuals, our idolatry is going to be different from person to person. The plague is the same, but the idolatry tends to be different from person to person. Um, but as I've taught in the past, up here on the board, idolatry is an issue for a believer under two key circumstances. One, either they're blatantly sinning in arrogance, and they really don't care, they're just stuck in some pit where they like their idols. They have no intention of giving up their idols. Their idol might be the person that looks back at them in the mirror. Their idol might be throwing a football later on this evening, Thursday night football, right? Their idol might be that person. Their idol might be some famous person in some field that they want to achieve greatness in. And so they're blatantly sinning in arrogance, and they say, oh, well. Or they are unaware of their idolatry. Now, the first treatment is easy because it's easy to, most, most, it's just easy to say, hey, look, you know, you realize you're being an idolatrist. That's not hard. But what if you're unaware of the idolatry? What if it takes messages like this for the Holy Spirit to sort of ferret it out of your soul, to sort of brush your feathers back, if you would, to peel an onion a couple of layers and say, oh, see? See, hidden underneath these layers, these polished layers, is a root of idolatry. So it's the second case that plagues even the most well-intentioned believer. So I believe what the Spirit's been doing for us is helping us step back, see the big picture, and discover for ourselves what kind of idolatry still exists in our souls. And some of you, I don't know, maybe um, struggle with this. Maybe you don't. You're not an introspective person regularly. Or you just don't want to be introspective because you, it's too painful. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But in case you're struggling, here's some food for thought for those of you who might struggle with critical thinking on this. And this is not some exhaustive list. It's just me sitting back with the Spirit and saying, what things are hidden? What areas of life might people have hidden idolatry? And, and how can you tell? Well, here's how you might discover hidden idolatry. If you have anything on this list or you can relate to anything on this list, somewhere in, that, in your soul there's idolatry, very likely. If you stress over home, mortgage, or rent, why don't you just move? There's nobody that says you have to live in a house that's as nice as the one you live in. I mean, God says he'll make sure that you don't die in the elements. That's a need. But you don't, I don't know anybody in here, and I know everybody in here well enough that lives in a house, that they couldn't downgrade quite a few levels before they even came close to getting to where their needs weren't being met. And if you rent or own, it doesn't matter. But if you're stressing over your home, there might be an idolatrous problem. But see, I get to come home to this beautiful house. And I tell all my friends, here's some pictures of my house. And all of a sudden, your home becomes a little idle. Because your home's a little nicer, say, than your last one. Or a little nicer than, say, your neighbors. Or your in-laws, who you can't stand. Or your ex, who you threw out years ago, whatever, I don't know. Whatever your problem is. If you're stressing out over home, mortgage, or rent, you might have an idolatry problem, and it's hidden. If you stress over car payments, get a hoopty. If you're, if you're hyper-concerned about kids' success, that seems to be one. Let it go. Your kids are not little idols. That's a news flash in America. Kids are not idols. We didn't have kids so that we could, we could make idols of them, so that we could idolize them, so that we can live vicariously through them. 
any self-esteem issue, any, you have an idolatry problem, starting with you. Because you're ba especially as a believer, you're basically saying that God screwed up when he made you. And God never screws up. Do you have any self-esteem issues? There's hidden idolatry there. Trying to keep or celebrate so-called blessings. That's another one that's been coming up from the pulpit in a pretty heavy way. What are we celebrating? You'd be surprised what people celebrate. It's almost like we turn, the blind, turn a blind eye. Like, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute, you know that's wrong. Yeah, I know, but I want to celebrate it. Why would you celebrate something that's wrong and then call it a blessing? That's a huge one in America. People get, I would argue that, I don't even know what the number is, I'm going to take a stab, but I'm going to say it's over 50% that people call blessings that aren't actually blessings their counterfeit blessings from the kingdom of darkness to keep these people in bondage to things like idols. Like a house or a car or a kid's... Whatever it is, you look at the list. Any of them, take your, take your, choose your poison. Why would you celebrate something that's keeping you destitute, poor, in Christ's currency? Why would you celebrate that thing that's wrong? We do it all the time. And nobody bats an eye. How about hyper-focus on romantic love? I want an idol or I want to be idolized? I want at least one person to love me so much that I can tear them away from Jesus Christ even. Because that's real proof. If I can get their love, if I can divert their eyes from Jesus Christ, then I believe that they really love me. Ay, Any of these, you take, these are just a list. Again, this is hardly an exhaustive list, but it's a good place to begin thinking about the insidiousness. And that is the proper word. The insidiousness of idolatry. John wrote what he wrote in 1 John 5.21 because he understood what I understand so many years later in a place like America. And this is it, really. The human flesh thrives on idolatry thrives on it. It's its currency. As the word is food for the new creature, so idolatry is for the old self where creature credit is the currency. Again, the human flesh thrives on idolatry. Jesus also broached this topic because he saw right through the motivation of many of those who followed him around. Just because someone was following him around back in the day doesn't mean that they were a true disciple. Doesn't mean that they were even saved, even if they said they were saved. Jesus saw right through, and he would look at he would look for people's motivation, and he would call out people's motivation. And I can't do that for you because I'm not him, I'm not God. But you can do that for yourself, and that's what the Spirit's been trying to encourage you to do: call out your own motivation. What is you peel back the onion a few layers, and what is really your motivation? Why do you want the, that list on the board? Why are those things affecting you? Who or what are you uh, idolizing? Excuse me. I don't know. Go to John six twenty six. Remember, true discipleship is a function. Excuse me, is a function of the heart, not the calculating, bet hedging human mind. I'll say that again when you get there. John six twenty six. True discipleship, John 6, 26. True discipleship is a function of the heart, not the calculating, bet-hedging human mind. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I like this guy. He's taking care of my physical body. Up here on the board... We saw this on Sunday. How many of us are like this even today? Do we seek the Lord because of what he can give us? Or do we seek him out of love? Those are two different motivations. One is self-serving. One is seeking to serve another. Do we seek him because of what he can give us? Or do we seek him out of love 
Are we merely users or are we lovers? That's a main distinction. And it's interesting because, there, like I said, there's a lot of disciples that follow him around even today like they did back then. But Jesus is never fooled. Did we not? Did we not? Yeah, but I never knew you. Jesus is never fooled. And so we shouldn't play this game and fool ourselves in any way because Jesus is never fooled. After Jesus explained the difference to the crowd gathered around him, he said in verse 33, Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not, will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. See, he was getting their perspective right, jolting them, saying, you're just worried about eating. You follow me around because I'm feeding you. But that's not what's important. That's not the one thing that's necessary, Martha. Because that's what Martha was worried about. Cleaning house, food, shelter, all that kind of stuff, the details of life. Mary knew what verse 35 meant. And that's what the Spirit's trying to direct us towards in our so-called busy lives, in our lives of idolatry, in American, the American dream and what have you. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Again, all of this is as Jesus told Martha, but only one thing is necessary. That is the bread of life. This is how we ended up with this series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. On Sunday, we dug a little deeper into a particular verse that is just too darn easy to become familiar with. This I'm convinced of as I ponder the body of believers that I know. Thinking of all the believers, not just people in this congregation, every believer I think I've ever known, I never know for sure, but everyone I think I know that I believe was a believer uh, is plagued with familiarity with this particular verse up here on the board, 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I think that people get familiar. I think that people don't understand the condition that they're in. I don't think that people realize how idolatrous they are and how ingrained they are with the details of life. Up here on the board, that's the impleco in the Greek for entangles means to weave, to entwine. I love that imagery because it doesn't just mean to veer off, you know? It doesn't mean to say, all right, there's a fork in the road. I'm going to choose this way versus the right way. It's I'm going to weave myself into a tapestry called the kingdom of darkness that's called the world system, let's say it that way. I'm going to weave my, myself into this thing. That's the imagery here. And you can see there's a, gr a, a much greater stickiness when you're woven into the fabric of a society that we just saw in Scripture is against, the whole world is against him. So it means to weave, to entwine, refers to being integrally involved with something else, sort of like being one color yarn in an Afghan blanket. There's inter, there are interdependencies that make such situations very sticky. And that's what I like about this word. It really illustrates the truth of what's being said in the Bible. And what the Bible is saying, you cannot be woven into the fabric of something evil and expect to get away scot-free. Expect to be pleasing to the one who recruited you, Christ. And a lot of people, I think, make that mistake of thinking they can play both games. And let me tell you from experience, you can't do it. You can do it for a little while, but eventually you break. Because it takes human effort to play that game. And we always exhaust. So we considered how difficult it can be to extract ourselves from the details of life. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, but you know, I had everything on that list you just listed. I have problems with all things on that list. Okay, I get it. God gets it. And there's a certain difficulty 
in extracting yourself. I mean, think about it. You have to, if you're that yawn in the, in the, in the Afghan, you have to, like, you know, you could be taking left turns and right turns. And I don't know. I'm not, I don't knit, so I don't know if you go up and down like cornrows. I don't know. <laughs> all I know is you could be going all over the place, which means you have to back your way out, and it may take a little while. Fine. Let it take a little while. So there is a certain difficulty in extracting ourselves from the details of life, admitting that there's a certain, let's call it a momentum, to living a life woven into an unholy fabric. There's a momentum there. You're part of a group. You're part of a bigger cause. It might be the world, but you're part of a bigger cause. And, and people on the outside are looking and saying, oh, how beautiful this tapestry is of people. And so there's a momentum there, a social momentum even, a reputational stickiness. And so you have to first admit that there's a certain momentum to living a life woven into an unholy fabric. It's like being on a subway train and the Holy Spirit says, get off of this train. And you're convicted, so you pull that, you know, that cable that jams on the brakes. Right? Last time I went to a Red Sox game, someone did it. I was stuck like this next to the guy that reeked so bad for like an hour. I was sitting claustrophobic. I'm not kidding. It was so bad. It was right after the game. You ever been on a train, the subway after a baseball game? What's out at Fenway? It's a joke. It should be illegal. You're like this. Anyways, I digress. So the spirit says, get off the train and you pull that cord. And by law, they have to stop it as far as I understand. The whole train comes to a halt. So you pull the cord, that jams on the brakes, but even then, it takes a while for the subway train to come to a complete stop because of its size and speed, a.k.a. its momentum. I get the sense that some of you have effectively pulled the cable, and I'm rooting for you. I tell some of you, I'm rooting for you. I see it. I can't get involved because I'll muck it up for you. I'm just a human too. But I see it, and I see that you've pulled the cable some of you are still like this, you know, oh, oh, oh. but some of you are like just heck with it. But your train hasn't stopped yet. Sparks are flying, you know, the whole nine yards. People are flying all over the place. <laughs> There's like social fatalities and casualties. But you're still technically still riding the train until it comes to a stop. In the meantime, Satan in the kingdom of darkness, they're whispering in your ear, just tell the conductor that it was a mistake to carry on. The whole time you're slowing down, the kingdom of darkness is whispering in your ear saying, just, let's just chalk it up as a mistake. You didn't mean to pull the cord. Too much havoc. Too many bodies flying around here. Too many people giving you dirty looks for pulling it. Too many people in your life that are in disagreement with what the Spirit's asking you to do. So let's just chalk it up. Right? All day long. Meanwhile, the Spirit's encouraging you to stay the course and get off this train ASAP. We call that dragging feet. If faith can move mountains, then it certainly can extract any of us from ungodliness. If faith can move mountains, and it can, then it certainly can extract any of us from ungodliness. Go to Mark 1.17. Mark 1.17. <clears throat> and I think that's what the Spirit's trying to tell us. He's saying, these are my commands. This is what I want for you. But I also understand that there's momentum in your lives that things are not going to change overnight, that you're woven, entangled into the details of a life that you brought to the table. And in many ways you were taught, you were encouraged to build upon. Mark 1.17, Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, immediately they pulled the cord. You see? And there wasn't anything even wrong with the train that they were on that we know of, not specifically. 
And they said, I got to get off this train and on to the next. So immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they were, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So you got Peter, Andrew, James, John, all fishermen, all eventually apostles, right? Who prioritized Jesus over their businesses, a.k.a. the details of life. All we're trying to do is define what is undistracted devotion. What does the Bible have to say about undistracted devotion? Well, I guess in the simplest terms, if Jesus says, follow me, you follow him. And really follow him, not pretend follow him. Devotion requires a certain surrender. It's impossible to be devoted to the Lord in something that distracts us from him. We had some pretty heavy-handed lessons on that. It's impossible to be devoted to the Lord in something that distracts us from Him. And so the Spirit asked us to ponder in our lives the things that would take us away from or distract us from our first love. Matthew 6.24, up here on the board, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. In America, that's a perfect example because wealth is an idol. Wealthy people, by virtue of being wealthy, are idols. It's unbelievable the power we give people because they have money. All of a sudden, they're smart. You could be as dumb as a rock, having inherited your money from your great-great-grandfather. But because you're a multimillionaire, people will actually listen to what you have to say. It's unbelievable. Since when did wealth make wise? Never. Never. But in, in America, that is what happens. When you, give, when you idolize people for whatever reason, whether it's wealth or fame or whatever, um, all of a sudden they get elevated. And when someone gets elevated, you start listening to things that they really have no business talking about. The next thing you know, you have a, another master, and now your devotion is split. Your allegiances, or your allegiance is split between Jesus and an idol. So the question on the table for all of us is, what will you do with this encouragement from the Spirit this day? What will you do? It is from the Spirit, right? Okay, up here on the board. John 14, 26. I just gave you Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Okay? Maybe you weren't thinking that. Well, who brought it up? God the Holy Spirit. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, he said Matthew 6, 24. He said no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in wealth. You're going to hate one and love the other, or vice versa. Jesus said that. And here's the Holy Spirit again, 2018, Pastor Ed Collins, North Christian Church, bringing to your remembrance what he said. And when he does that, there's an inescapable truth to it. You can kind of wiggle and wrangle and do all these things, but the reality is that the truth is the truth is the truth. And the quickest way to freedom is just to accept truth in your life. So here's something else he's been bringing to remembrance. Go to Mark 8.35. Mark 8.35. Got to love the tenacity of the Holy Spirit, the faithfulness of God the Holy Spirit through this pulpit and so many other godly pulpits. Mark 8.35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Up here on the board, a little extra clarity on that. To lose your life is to dedicate yourself to the Lord rather than self. That's what to lose your life means. He purchased you. 
you're not even your own. So you dedicate yourself to the one who owns you, your master, capital M. That's what it means to lose your life. You have to surrender your lifelong claim to your life. For after all, you have been purchased with a price. Excuse me, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 states, you are not your own. You are not your own, and you have to think that way. And when you understand that, it's not hard to surrender because, well, it's not my life anyways. Use me the way you want, Lord. So we have a choice to make, one that Jesus did not dance around. Go to Mark 8.36. 8.36. For what does it profit a man to gain the world, the whole world, and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, that's one heck of a question, isn't it? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? On this topic, then, there are very practical aspects to our curriculum over the past few months. Up here on the board. Devotion to the Lord is something that others certainly see. For example, many people would have grown to know Anna. We saw her example and her dedication to the temple, for she was there all the time. Remember our previous series, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. So there's practical aspects to what the Spirit's been ferreting out of our souls. And the question is, what's your dedication to your temple look like? And to whose glory do you use it? What's your dedication to your temple look like? And to whose glory do you use it? After all, you've been given a temple for His glory, not your own. I mean, He didn't purchase you for the sake of you bringing glory to yourself. He purchased you so He could bring glory to Himself. So we are vessels of mercy in that sense. Given the fact that God indwells us, the Trinity that is, our encouragement has been, go to Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5.1. So we've been given these temples. The Trinity indwells us. Therefore, Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I gave you this practical insight up here on the board. As beloved children, parents often tell their children to behave in public because it's their good name at stake. A disrespectful, unruly, naughty brat reflects poorly on the parents. How's that any different than any family, including God's? As beloved children, imitate God. Verse 2, and walk in love. How many times has love been coming up in our messages just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And so we closed out that series, God Sees the Heart, but the World Sees the Choices We Make. I want to say it was 17 parts. And we were reminded to keep our mind's eye on the choices we make. We are children of the Holy God of the universe, after all. So let us act in such a way that brings glory to Him. Let us reject the temptation to compete with the world by the world's scale of values. And let's put away any notion of self-righteousness, always stepping aside in order that the Lord's good name shine through us. These are the things that we've learned. And let us never forget that our own good name, as a result of doing these things, is a grace gift from above. Our goal is undistracted devotion to the Lord, not devotion to self. For that is where 
all of our blessings lie. Undistracted devotion to the Lord, a man reaps what he sows. If, we're, if we do as we're commanded, if we devote ourselves to the Lord, the one who purchased us, we're blessed. If we devote ourselves to self, we're not. Even more importantly, this is where glory to God is found. And since we have the time, uh, let's read. Let's go to, the, let's go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, the Hall of Fame of Faith. It talks very practically about um, individuals who are or have been pleasing to the Lord. Individuals who cha- face their own challenges, who found themselves in unique circumstances, just like you do this day who had to leave nets behind and work business relationships, maybe even personal relationships. I mean, Jesus said all these things. I came to divide. Father, son, mother, daughter, in-laws to in-laws. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, He was pleasing to God. Didn't we just read that? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I just talked about that in a different way regarding blessings. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even one of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Skip to verse 17. By faith, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than treasures of Egypt. Boy, a lot of Americans could learn that. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, For he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land. 
and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We might ask ourselves what the common thread was with all these individuals listed in Hebrews 11. Obviously, it was faith. Go to Hebrews 11.1 1 again. The answer is obviously in the first two verses. This is the common thread. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some of these people didn't even realize the promises, but they did it for, let's call it posterity's sake. For by it the men of old gained approval. You see, so much is about... So many people misappropriate the word blessings to end goals. They focus on end goals to such a degree the end goals become idols, and they miss the process. The blessing is actually in living. It's not the end goal. The blessing in life is actually learning to live in freedom. Everybody, especially, I I can only speak for Americans, Everybody's got the five-year and the 10-year and the 20-year plan. Heck, it's ingrained in us when we're in grade school. Got to have a plan. Got to have this in check. Got to have that in check. Check all these. (laughs) And next thing you know, the things out here that aren't even real, you don't even know if they're going to happen. 90% of the time, they don't. They become your idols. You put it up. You know what I mean? That's why people love calendars. Oh, they got a big star on, you know, 2029 because that's when they're going to be, I don't know, whatever the next astronaut to go to whatever. And it becomes an idol. There's nothing wrong with having goals. That's not what I'm saying. But it becomes an idol. And they lose sight of their first love and everything is directed towards that thing. And they forget to live. They forget to live. God's like, what the heck, man? Have a little faith. I'll take care of you. If that's where I want you to go, guess what? You'll end up there. Maybe kicking and screaming. Maybe joyfully running and doing cartwheels. But either way, if that's where I want you to go, guess where you're going to be in 2029, right where I said you were going to be. So can't you relax and enjoy now? How about relax a little bit? How about have a little faith? Read Hebrews 11. What was the common thread? Faith. And that's what's pleasing to the Lord. Learning to live in the now with faith. Learning to relax. Not being all stressed out like I told that little list that, you know, like the first two or three were stress factors, right? Why are you so stressed out about everything? Get rid of your idols then. If you're stressed out about things, get rid of whatever it is that's stressing you out. I don't mean some of you like, oh, well, I don't like, I'm stressed out about work, so I'm quitting. Don't be lazy. I'm saying you're idols. That's part of our curse. Go back to Genesis. I'm talking about your idols. What are you stressed out about? What is it you think you need when it's really just a want? Don't receive definitions from America, ever, because we're messed up. America's really messed up right now, and our definitions are so cockeyed. We don't even know what love is anymore. We're all ingrained in the details of life. We've lost our first love. 
And that's not pleasing to the Lord. But Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 is pleasing faith. Paul wrote about this. And it's interesting to note that he did so with an empathetic heart. You've heard some of that from the pulpit this evening. Empathy. That God the Holy Spirit does make commands and give us commands to live by. But he also understands who we are. And so he obviously has certain empathy for us. Doesn't mean he changes his mind. Does never mean, I'm going to say it again, never, from Sunday, celebrate wrongness, ever. But he can, he can sympathize with us. He will accept that we're slow-moving creatures because, after all, he did create us. But it doesn't mean that he uh, celebrates or says it's okay when you're out of order, when you're disjointed from him. So it's interesting that the Bible includes, includes empathy. Paul, for example, had an empathetic heart. In other words, he expressed the same things that the Spirit has expressed to us about our own struggles with the human flesh. He wrote understandingly throughout his epistles on this topic. Romans is a perfect, in the middle of Romans, Romans 7 is a perfect place to read of such understanding. So I guess what I'll say in my own little word, my own way this evening is, let's just be realistic. If God can be realistic with us, then we should be realistic with us. Until we die physically, we will be haunted by the reality that one of our primary enemies in this life resides in our own bodies. Let's be realistic, you know? The struggle is real. It's true. Let me go back. Let's be, <laughs> let's be realistic. Until we die physically, we will be haunted by the reality that one of our primary enemies in this life resides in our own body. We have an enemy. Literally. Not kind of like an antagonist. An enemy, which is an antagonist. But antagonist becomes a subset at that point. It's an enemy. It does not want you to be sanctified for Christ's sake. It does not want you to bring glory to God. It wants you to bring glory to the body, to self. Make self an idol. America's really good at that. And here you sit this evening on a Thursday evening. Some of you look really pooped out. I don't know where the rest of the gang is. And here you sit, and the struggle is real. And I know I'm being silly there with Angry Cat, but the struggle is real, and we need to accept it. Why can I teach that? Because the Bible says it's real. Because people much greater than me, my forerunners, guys who pen the Bible through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that this is the way it is. I mean, I can be silly with you, but the message is the same. We mustn't be too hard on ourselves. We mustn't be too hard on ourselves. Should we be matter-of-fact about the doctrines in the Bible? Sure. Should we be matter-of-fact about the commands in the Bible? Absolutely. Should we celebrate when we break commands? Absolutely not. But we can't be too hard on ourselves in a practical sense. We have to recognize it, but then there are steps we take. Because we're too hard on ourselves, we'll quit. Do you understand? And it's funny because it brings into remembrance that other verse that God will never give you more than you can handle. And this is what he's doing right now. Is that he's giving you a little relief valve. Because some, some of you, when you hear some of these things about idolatry and you get really convicted... You get all, like, tensed up. And Satan's saying, yeah, just get, you know, just say it was a mistake. Don't pull the cord. Just say it was a mistake. We'll just carry on, status quo. But if you realize that God himself has instilled empathy into his word, then you're less likely to be exacerbated. I mean, isn't that what the Bible says? Fathers don't exacerbate your children. Now, why would the, our father say that to fa earthly fathers unless he's the same way? He's not in the business of exacerbating us. 
He's trying to sanctify us. If he was in the business of exacerbating us, Jesus Christ, before he went to his cross, would have pointed out everybody's sins. You're a sinner, you're a sinner. You're, I, see, I see everything you're doing. Oh, my word. No, 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 no. No, he didn't. He didn't. He came to save. That should be our heart. Starting with ourselves. When I say this, what I'm saying is that we have to learn to put the onus of sanctification on the Lord. Put the onus of sanctification on the Lord. That is what He wants. That's why you can't ever leave a class with a checklist. I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to be more spiritual. I'm going to be more this. You notice how many, I just said three eyes. He wants you to put the onus of sanctification on him. You have to learn to repeat that to yourselves up here on the board. If God wants something done, he presumes it is his work to do. If God wants something done, he presumes it's his work to do. We're going to pretend there's work that has to be done on his behalf, like getting wants and calling the meads, that whole thing, and then calling me blessings and blah, blah, and this is God trying to bless me out, that whole garbage thing. I'm making idols, all this kind of stuff. We're going to mess it up a hundred ways to someday. But as far as he's concerned, if he wants to get something done and it's godly, he considers it his work, and that includes your sanctification while every other religious moron is out there trying to sanctify themselves, for themselves, by themselves, um, he's saying that's all wrong. He's saying, I'll sanctify you, but it's going to be the way I sanctify you. And it's going to be godly. But you've got to drop all this baggage because it's really frustrating what I'm trying to do in you. You know, I'm going to spend some real time with you, unweaving you, taking you out of the tangle that you're in, slowing the train down, taking the momentum out of the equation so you can actually get off that train. That's his work. To give that statement on the board a little context for encouragement's sake before I close, what we have to do from time to time is remember that although there are, let's call them undoable commands in the Bible. I mean, let's face it, who hasn't read a command in the Bible? There's no way I could ever do that. What we have to remember is this. It's true, you can't. Matthew 9, 26, and looking at them, Jesus said, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the next time you see an impossible or undoable command in your head, you have to say, it is undoable. I can't ever do that, but God can. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. But if he says he wants me to do it, I can assume that he believes, and this is God, that it's his problem. And it is his problem. So I'm kind of excited to see how he's going to do it because I'm pretty much of a goofball. I'm certainly not able to do it. I'm weak and pathetic without him. So here's what I'll close with. You are not responsible for your own sanctification. You are not responsible for your own sanctification, God is. So relax. You are only responsible for remaining humble and making good choices. That you're responsible for. God will change your motivation over time and even increase your humility. That's what makes grace so special is that there is some personal responsibility. But the amazing thing is that he multiplies. The one who chooses to make good decisions, the one who stays humble, to him he adds more. You know, to the one who has, to him I'll give even more. So says Holy Scripture. If you try to force anything, you quickly move into the land of religion and legalism. So please do not ever take that route, for in the end, while it is justified as humility, and it may fool some playing the same game, it's actually arrogance. I'll end with this. It's always arrogant to assume God's place in sanctification. 
It's always arrogant for you to assume God's place in sanctification. God wants to sanctify you. He will. He's promised it. He has promised it. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening's message, for sanctifying us, for continually, continually reminding us to get out of your way. For this is your good work. These are your promises. All we have to have is a little faith, Father. This is what it's all about. Thank you for your patience with us as we continue to struggle to get off this train called life and all the details and the idols and what have you, Father, that ensnare us. We love you, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we learned this evening out to a lost and dying world, Father, needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.